welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Each year, millions and millions of whatever currency you care to have are spent explaining generations to one another. Inherent in that expensive explanation is the idea that people born at about the same time are essentially alike and very different from people born at other times. But as Bobby Duffy explains in his new book, The Generation Myth, why when you're born matters less than you think, it ain't necessarily so. Generational identities are not fixed, but fluid. They change over time. And beware of those who try to sell you simplistic or simply false, perhaps slightly evil concepts like generational warfare, inevitable social decline, or that the kids only care about the environment and not the olds, or that Gen Z is the suicidal generation. Bobby Duffy is Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London, formerly Director of Research at the public opinion firm Ipsos Mori. His most recent book was published in the United States under the title, Why We're Wrong About Nearly Everything. Bobby Duffy, welcome to Historically Thinking. Yeah, really brilliant to be here. Thank you, Al. Well, I, uh, as I said to you when we started, uh, when we got online, uh, when I saw the blurb to this book, I knew I wanted to talk to you about it because uh, it confirmed my prejudices to such a degree that I wanted to buy it a corsage and take it to the senior prom. <laughs> um, maybe even rent a limousine. That's how much I liked it. Uh, so, a quote uh, I need for my next it's a, good, it's a good blurb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to have that one myself someday. Um, so I want to spend a little time um, on the preliminary stuff, uh, because it's a, it's a brilliant book. You fly about from flower to flower, um, you know, sucking or rejecting nectar. Um, mm. but I, I want to look at sort of the foundational stuff, sort of, um, you know, social science for the historian is how I'm thinking about it. Sort of social science methods for those of us who managed to avoid the class because the professor had, was sick that year. Um, I, I'm, that might, that's just a completely random um, example that I just pulled out of my hat. So I, I want to first ask you a question that I've been waiting all my life to ask someone. Uh, right. And it, no one better than the director of, former director of research at Ipsos Mori. Yeah. What is a generation? And secondly... Is there a statistically valid way of defining generation? Wow. Let's start with the easy questions. Well, that's great. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, like I, the concept of generations is built on some really big, incontrovertible truths, really. And it mm -hmm. comes, starts from the very basic point is that we're, uh, we've, as individuals, we're born, we live an age, and then we die. And yeah. as a society, that, that cons <laughs> yes, it's not news. <laughs> There's this constant flow through society of people being born into very different sorts of circumstances, socialized in different kind of circumstances, because time has moved on. And the second element of that is that uh, we know that uh, your experiences during your formative years of late teens, early adulthood, those, those types of periods, are more important in setting your beliefs, values, attitudes, and behaviors. Um, mm -hmm. They kind of help shape you. We, we kind of, we know that too. So there is, there's a fundamental point there, which is, um, goes all, you know, goes all the way back through history of thought and some very big sociologists and philosophers 
Um, Go ahead, pull uh, them out. Know. That's we can handle it. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's like a Goose Compte and Karl Mannheim who really uh, kind of shape the way we think about generations today. These sorts of social generations that we think of today, where um, Compte actually thought that generations was perhaps the uh, most important factor in the basic speed of human development, because mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of philosophers and uh, and sociologists, their, their thought experiments were all around things like um, what would happen if we lived forever as individuals, <laughs> and yeah. um, and if we lived forever, progress would slow or stop because mm-hmm. as individuals you you get less less flexible as you get older. And we need this constant injection of new thinking, new ideas, in order to keep fresh as a society. Um, it's, and then it's, calm it, up. Yeah, it's still a concept Sorry. that leads to bleak and dystopian science fiction. Um, you <laughs> it know, does and, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, very much so. And, but correctly, you know, is that point of we do, we all feel it as we get older. You are less flexible and open to the new right. as as you get older. And and then Mannheim uh, kind of built on those 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 sorts of thoughts to think about how a generational identity is formed mostly through traumatic experiences Mannheim was focused on. It was there's no accident that quite a lot of the current thinking around generations that we still draw on was all around the First World War in Europe. Mm-hmm. A lot of European sociologists and philosophers who saw the incredible uh, sacrifices of young people by older people mm-hmm. in the First World War and that brought a lot of thoughts around what what do we how do we form generational identities? How do we start to differentiate ourselves from other generations? And really big thoughts. That's a really interesting point. I want to get back to that in a bit. Uh, this Respond to that and then put a pin in it. Um, so generational thinking has an element of generational conflict built into it from the beginning, which is, I think, which is very really, interesting. Yeah, really important point is that it's kind of grew out of a lot of the structural discussions of um, uh, class and socioeconomic outcomes for people where th- those things were seen as intertwined. And a lot of um, Mannheim's thoughts were how, because industrial progress was happening very quickly, how uh, older people's skills, uh, as opposed to more traditional societies, older people's skills were becoming out of date. So younger yeah. people had more of an advantage. And so his view of technological progress being really important to the speed and depth of generational formation was related to that sense of change, technological progress. So, so, and also then to 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 summarize Mannheim, there are certain uh, certain things that generation shares. There might be traumas, they might be energizing experiences that yeah. unites them in a common experience. So let me let's pick on our parents. Um, <laughs> okay. um, so uh, my parents are both of the, of the so-called silent the silent generation. We'll get to these terms in a little bit. Uh, born mm. in the '30s. Uh, so my father um, uh, that family remained well off, I would say, during the, the Depression, but my father was unquestionably a Depression baby. Mm. Um, you know, he died a couple of years ago, and I'm still, we're still going to be unloading things out of barns and attics that he <sighs> saved, which he did right. because that's what you had to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that made an imprint on him. My mother uh, grew up on army posts during the Second World War, and in right. a way has crystallizes the experience of probably children of her era yeah. of, of that energizing enlivening, vibrant experience. Mm-hmm. I think John, what's John Borman's film? Thank you. Uh, uh, Hope and Glory, which yeah. the, the subtitle was Thank You, Adolf. Uh, yeah. The way um, that children of that era, Britain or the United States, who were somewhat more removed than, say, French or German children from conflict, 
uh, had an energizing and, and invigorating experience of mm. unity and patriotism and all mm -hmm. the rest of it. So those are that's sort of Mannheim's that's exemplars yeah. then of Mannheim's sort of theory of generations. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, not not all generations form that sense of identity in Mannheim's understanding of that. Although he did he did in his you know famous essays on this recognize that regardless of those big traumatic events, we mm. are pulled apart as generations by the slower grind of evolutionary change, culture, evolutionary okay. cultural change. So even when you don't have those types of things, there is just the, the background noise, the culture, the technology, the economic environment that we grow up in does shape us even without those um, uh -huh. shapes us in a different ways to our parents that um, um, even without those big, big dramatic events. But obviously uh -huh. with COVID happening now, we do have what, what Mannheim would absolutely classifies a truly generational event happening right now for us but yes i mean that so that's the, they're the, some of the big thoughts and then you your, your question about the scientific basis of the current categories is a really good one and very current i'm doing lots of interviews and discussions with people around exactly that because i think it's very interesting as a uk person coming into this because it's clear that the american discussion on this has got very tired of these classifications <laughs> <No>. <laughs> in a way that it's not quite as prominent in the UK. We've got, we kind of get that they're cliches and stereotypes, but there's some real uh, growing anger and discontent about what's, what we've we done to create these labels uh, that sum up swathes of millions of people um, in one uh, adjective <laughs> or yeah. um, one very, a blunt set of characteristics, and I can understand that because you, 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 the American market has suffered from this for longer um, and has more volume of these types of terrible cliches and, and stereotypes. So, um, from my perspective, uh, I get asked, getting asked a lot of questions. Can't, can't we just? Shouldn't we just do away with these types of generational groupings? And I'm, I am. You know, my answer to that is we can't because they're so embedded now in our thinking yeah. that we love the stories of generational difference and they become so uh, ingrained in our thinking that there's no way that you can get the genie back in the bottle on this. And then what what's the answer? The answer is not to abandon the field to bad analysis, but try to improve the quality of the analysis that you are doing. On it, and that's what the book tries to do and say. Actually, there's the really big idea behind generations, truly big idea. There are true generational differences that these categories um, do uh, hold up a mirror to, um, and uh, therefore we should improve the analysis that we do, separating the myths and the realities of generational difference, rather than just pretend that uh, we can give up the idea. Um, if, if you were starting from a blank sheet of paper and you could roll back all of this, would you do it in the same way? I don't think so. No, um, <laughs> it's a bit, it is, these categorizations are pretty random. Um, a 20 year baby boomer, a 13 year generation, uh, gen X kind of right. gap, uh, back up to a 15 or so year millennial, uh, grouping and then we don't quite know the end of gen x uh, gen z right now so um but it's going to be sort of similar so it's and they're not particularly linked to demography demographic events or and there's a there's a disconnect between the theory and reality here where actually it's not so much birth year 
that matters. Mm. It's the years you were socialized during. Yeah, that exactly. Matters. That's Man- that's Mannheim's point, right? I mean, that's yeah. that, and so it's that it's the teen years and the early twenties, yeah. even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is sort of that. That is the the formative years. Those those kind of formative years. So we've got this birth year based system. Where actually, you shouldn't be looking. At, you should be looking at when did when were people going through those formative experiences, and that's. Mm-hmm quite disconnected from our current categorizations in many mm-hmm. ways. People do make the leap and you kind of can get it. But I don't think a solution like turning to decades and dropping the labels. We just we just transfer the same cliches and That's stereotypes. Out of the frying to, pan into the fire. Don't even get yeah. started on decades. I mean the roaring twenties yeah. or the some thrilling exactly. whatever it is, right, you know. Um, exactly. Not everyone in the 1920s America was swallowing goldfish or sitting on flagpoles, uh, oddly <laughs> enough. Um, the, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no. So you, you say you say on, on page seven, there are just three explanations for how all attitudes, beliefs, behaviors change over time. Hmm. So not surprisingly, there are several uh, question marks and a couple exclamation points in the margin next to that. Um, and you're, you're trying to broaden our attitude to realize that yeah. there's more than just generational stuff going on. So could you briefly describe those three explanations and the, the rings yeah. of power as I now think of them? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a nice way to think about it. It's, um, it's based on a statistical model, which is in you know, stats terms, they're called age period cohort effect. Um, and it's basically uh, a way to try to identify the impact of those different elements of it. And I, I swap age for life cycle but if we just run through what they are um uh, a life cycle effect is that people change as they age as you might understand that uh, you know if you go through particularly as you go through particular life stages of leaving home getting married having kids getting a job retiring all of those types of things have an effect on us as well as pure aging um effects so that's kind of effect number one um effect number two is cohort effects where generations are different from each other and stay different. It's not to do with their age. It's to do with when they were born. So you'll be comparing, uh, say, Gen X at the same age as millennials and saying, were they the same or different? Um, mm-hmm. And the third one is period effects, which is things happen. Um, uh, big events like a pandemic or a war or a financial crisis, a type of Taleb like uh, black swan events that really shake things up or they happen gradually over time um, and just shift us along like cultural changes on acceptance of homosexuality or changing views of gender roles, um, uh, those, those types of things. And I, I, t- I tend to think of it like uh, tides, currents and waves, where tides are the cohort effects, they're really big, powerful things slow moving and relatively predictable. Um, Currents are life cycle effects because you get pulled along a certain path, regardless Mm -hmm. of where you are. Um, It's kind of the, there is a a normal course uh, that people get pulled along through life and it doesn't apply to everyone. It happens different times, all of those things, but it's powerful currents that pull us along and pull us back into line. Mm -hmm. And then the period effects are like waves, um, which can be really small and just lapping at, uh, at the land, uh, or they can be huge tsunami type events and the most powerful things you see in uh, kind of ocean environments. So those, those are the types of things. And, and basically all changes are blend 
of these like types of I like, things. I like that metaphor very much, but that's a really, I, I plan on stealing that often. Good, uh, that, good. That, no, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense of like, you know, large, long durée social history and that way of, of describing things. Yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, and, and you can't unpick the effects. I mean, much like the ocean, it's, yeah. you can't say that this one is utterly to do with this or to do with that because they interact all the time. And that's part, that reflects back on the statistical model. Uh, is that it's impossible to fully unpick what is down to your age when you were born or what's happening right now. Uh, you mm-hmm. can't really, in statistical terms, because it's called an identification problem, where you've got, if you know two of the factors, you automatically know the third. So if I know uh, your age and what data is today, I can tell when you're born. So that means in statistical terms, you can't fully unpick these different effects. Mm-hmm. But what I do in the book is not stats modeling it's just um, plotting people as line charts. So you, you follow cohorts over time. And that then you can get a little bit of an indication into what are these types of effects. Because if it's a cohort effect where one generation stays different from each other, as you plot baby boomers against Gen X, the gap between them stays consistent, the lines stay flat. And you can see that, say, on identification with religion, um, where you, you're socialized into a particular level of um, religiosity and then you kind of stick with that as a cohort not as an individual but on average across a cohort so you can start to see these effects played out in people's lives just by plotting them mm-hmm. um i was thinking uh, uh, about the book uh, about you make the obvious point that um the young have always had problems with the old and vice versa most of the old have problem with the young yes. uh we're youthful looking but Gen Xers, <laughs> aging Gen Xers. And yes. I increasingly find that I do have problems with the young. Uh, yeah. One of the things I'm surprised to find out how much more I know than I used to think I did. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and you know, the feeling of also, what's, what's the great William Phillips line? Uh, Those questions are so old, I've forgotten all the answers. <laughs> yes. um, it, that started to kick in about five years ago. Um, yeah. And um, so there's always been that problem. Um, sure, Plato had lots of things to bad things to say about the young, but in a way that's perfectly normal. I haven't never talked to a Yanomami uh, tribesman of the Amazon basin, but I'm sure mm. they have problems with their young as well. Absolutely. That's a, uh, if I was a evolutionary psychologist, I'd probably say, well, this is exactly the way that we advanced primates handle things. Uh, we're concerned about our future. Uh, we want to enculturate them. Uh, yep. We want to make sure that uh, the three-year-old is not acting like a three-year-old when they're 17 or yep. 43. Yeah. Uh, which is a bit of a stretch these days, a hard thing to do. Um, yeah. But it's it's essential for our personal future, but the future of the rest of the tribe, broadly yeah. speaking, that we do this. Um, what's interesting over the last hundred years, of course, is that we've invented new words mm-hmm. uh, and concepts like teenager, mm-hmm. uh, which is always a shock to people, to uh, students, to realize that is like a new term that people didn't think of necessarily of teenagers. We invented youth culture. Uh, Hell, we invented high school around 19, by 1920, suddenly, very suddenly, a majority of Americans were going to a place that segregated them by age and then eventually put them together in a co-ed basis, which, you know, previous generations would say like, you know, stop, it's better to shake nitroglycerin in a jar briskly. (laughs) You know, that's, that's a crazy idea. Um, yeah. So th- there are there are all, all these other ways, these sort of generational conflicts and way of instantiating general generational conflicts that overlie our way of looking at 
cohorts mm -hmm. and generations. Isn't that isn't that right? I mean, those have to be sort of peeled back. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you covered a lot there. That is um, a lot of really key, uh, a lot of really key points. And I, I think it's um, absolutely true. You go to any point in history, and you'll find quotes from prominent people of that time saying that this current generation of young people are the worst ever and you know, uniquely wrong or weird um, generation. And um, that is utterly natural. And that is one of one of the reassuring points of the book that that mm -hmm. is, well, it's not only natural, it's essential. There's a, there's a it's great, actually, it's actually essential. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a great um, demographer from the 1950s called Norman Ryder, who talks about these types of things as a type of demographic metabolism that keeps us fresh and um, mm -hmm. uh, vibrant is yeah. where each, each generation of young people is seen as an invasion of the barbarians as he right. calls this it. This is, there's no uh, way around that. I've heard this attributed to Hannah Arendt that every year, every Absolutely. day, civilization is invaded by a horde of barbarians. We call them babies. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, Hannah Arendt and, covers that too. Yeah. And then she must have gotten that from Augustine because Augustine in the Confessions says, um, you know, if you don't think a, a child is sinful at one, then try to imagine the same behavior when they're 20. Uh, I paraphrase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. there's the there's the idea of the way that we have to enculture, we have to sort of train babies out of being babies. We have to train children out of being children. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, so we do get that sense, and you know, it, it applies to progress more generally. There's great mm -hmm. Douglas Adams quotes about anything that is new when you're um, under ten years old is uh, just natural. Anything that becomes new when you're in your teens is exciting and <laughs> Anything that becomes new when you get older than that is just scary and wrong. And and there is there is a element, you know, that that we see that in the moral panics that we get, not just mm -hmm. about young people themselves, but anything that they're associated with, any new technology sure. that they're yeah. associated with. So this is this is a constant, and I find that reassuring, mm -hmm. and I try to make that reassuring in the book because the way that we're setting up the divisions between young and old today in a kind of generational culture war or a generational political war um, is ahistorical and doesn't recognize that these gaps are always there. Mm -hmm. And if anything, you know, we've had bigger gaps in the past than we, when we have right now. And that's, that's really important to, bear, uh, to, to remember. And it gives you a little bit of a sense of let's not get too scared or hysterical mm -hmm. about this. But on the other hand, um, we have a entire decades, well, uh, almost a century of, of advertising culture mm. using generational complex, uh, concepts to sell youth. Uh, we've got, you know, uh, TV production people calling, say, hey, you know, you're at cross tabs among the 18 to 25 demographic. They're not looking that good. And we, we can't really go forward with this project. Yeah. Um, you know, that the Plato's youth did not have cultural power <laughs> uh, in the way that our youth do. So that, that also sets up a generational conflict from the beginning. Yeah, it's still crazy, the unthinking ageism of uh, the advertising industry, the entertainment industry more generally. It's just uh, I found some, you know, some articles from Marketing Week or um, Campaign or one of, you know, one of the industry trade magazines that, but full of smart people that are trying to sell as much stuff as possible that talks about how we need a step change in um, uh, our engagement of older groups because they're, they're going to have more money. Um, 
and that was that article was like 40 years ago and you, you'll still find the same article written today uh, yeah. in all those types of trade magazines about oh we've got to really start to seriously take note of this massive incredibly rich cohort of older people but we're, why are we still promoting youth as the the vision that we should all be aspiring to and it's kind of it's interesting that uh, they really you know really struggle with that and it is partly that much broader cultural change of while we're old now we still aspire to youth um right, and right. it's uh, rather than wisdom really, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah um it's that's very hard to sell wisdom um, yes yeah doesn't seem to be many takers for that, but no. um, let's let's uh, skip about. I want to skip forward through the book. Um, we can't mm. cover everything <laughs> in the book. No. Besides, it's a podcast. It's very hard to show the charts and the yes. graphs. Um, yes, but I wanted to ask you a few things and ask you to puncture a few myths um, for mm. the benefit of, of listeners. So uh, let's t- uh, in chapter three you talk about basically work, mm. and you talk about there's a. Uh, I, I really sunk my teeth into this with deep pleasure, the myth of disloyalty, the myth of laziness. Mm. Yeah. And then also basically you describe to me, to my satisfaction, why generational workplace researchers should be exiled to North Dakota <laughs> um, into a, like some sort of large camp. Um, but yeah. so we, let's start with the myth of disloyalty. Are, is the, whatever they, we want to call the latest generation, are they uniquely disloyal and lazy on the work? No, channel, not at all. Work- okay. No, no. Both of those strands of disloyalty and laziness at work are kind of utter, utter misreadings of the um, data. It's true that young people move job more often than older people, but that's always been the case. And if anything, current generations of younger people are moving less. Um, really? Than, that's not... Yeah. That's, uh, it's, that's more UK data than US data. Yeah. US data is pretty flat. Because um, the, the idea that we have got a uh, massive gig economy... That is just people um, doing lots and lots of side hustles and and those types of things is is dwarfed by the fact that uh, when people have regular jobs, because the economic environment is so uncertain, they hold on to them as hard as they can um, mm-hmm. and move less, and it actually hurts their wage progression because you 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 earn more if you move around rather than mm-hmm. staying as a uh, and it's, it is more pointed in the UK where um, actually you can see how over the past. Uh, decade or so, uh, younger people have moved less than younger people used to because the economic is not, it's not great economic circumstances and you, you hold on to what you've got. Um, it's the same sort of thing with the laziness. Uh, that's a yeah. misreading because, again, you get um, snapshots that would show young people working fewer hours today than their parents used to work. But that's because we're all working fewer hours. It's kind of um, an <laughs> it's in a long-term decline in working hours, from, you know, extraordinarily high working hours um, in the uh, 19th and early 20th century. And it's just trailed down. It's, it's kind of, it's going down much more slowly now, but it's still going mm-hmm. down over time. So it's just comparing the wrong, it's mixing up this um, age age stroke life cycle and period effects um, and blaming it on a cohort when it's not yeah. really anything to do with. We could have done the same thing. I reckon if we had the data, we could do 1880, say, textile workers in Yorkshire with 1830 textile workers in Yorkshire when yeah. that was a, literally a cottage industry and you had a loom in your Absolutely. house and you chose your work and you were great on piecework. We could say they were lazier in 1830 than they were yeah. in, 18, in 1880. We yes, to play exactly. That game. Yeah. exactly. It's very easy to pick these points to make that. And generational workplace, yes, I agree. They are 
the trouble with it is is that people buy it. <laughs> uh, really big employers buy this idea that there is uh, something utterly different about this latest cohort, and I, we I don't understand. Say, I hate them. to say this to you. I, I don't know about you know the University of London, very distinguished institution, but lots yeah. of colleges buy it too. Yes, absolutely. You, know, you, know, you, you, yeah. you get to hear, if you want, you can hear lots of lectures. And I, God knows what the deans of students are doing when they're at their conferences, <laughs> but they, they probably hear lots of stuff like this. It's, yeah, it's a really interesting point. And just as an aside, I mean, I think it relates to, because I do hear that from, I don't teach, I just do research, but I um, do hear from a lot of teaching colleagues about how hard it is to connect with, harder than it was in the past. And that's partly to do with them aging, um, but it is also to do with, the increasing segregation of the age groups in mm-hmm. a, you know, we live in much more different places than we used to. We have had this mm-hmm. extraordinary experiment um, in generational segregation in, in both the UK and the US in terms of where uh, young people live compared to old people. Could, people could you cities. explain that? That, that? that sort of gets into your, we, we skipped over chapter two, but that sort of gets into your sort of questions about home and living and stuff. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. Um, uh, di- uh, uh, divergence of where young and old live um, hmm. with young increasingly concentrated in cities older people outside of cities in all sorts of um, uh, rural suburban and coastal environments and it, it's um, in the UK it's incredible switch in the last 20 years where there just wasn't much of an age-based segregation of hmm. physical areas up until 2001, that type of time, um, 1991 to 2001 census, those types of times. And then it's just grown massively apart. And there's exactly the same trend that just happened earlier in the US, um, as is so often the case. But, you know, lots of very prominent academics saying this is a dangerous experiment. We're living more separately than we have in human history. Uh, is, this, and is this, um, sorry, just to, to, we talked earlier about the three different sort of uh, ways of the oceanographic metaphors. So which one mm. is this that's happening? This is a cohort uh, effect? This is where the, this is where, this is a genuine generational change? Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it's more of a period effect in the sense period that effect, we, we, have, we have now come into, um, yeah, we come into an era where uh, having, whether it was seen as beneficial from both old and young perspective to live in different sorts of communities. And a lot of this mm-hmm. did come from the U.S.'s um, you know, uh, 1960s, 1970s, setting up of retirement villages mm-hmm. and uh, all of those types outside the city. The state of Florida. Mm-hmm. State of Florida, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and there's, you know, Mark Friedman and lots of other great U.S. Uh, thinkers and doers have uh, written a lot about um how that kind of trend of, of segregation has had all sorts of knock-on effects. And then I would add, I would overlay that now with obviously our digital lives mm-hmm. are also very separate. It's true that older people are much more online than they were before, but we're all on in different communities online um, with incredible segregation between Snapchat as a platform, for example, right. for the young and or TikTok um, and uh, Facebook um or Twitter for for older people, and it's that digital our digital lives much more important to us than they were in the past, obviously, and just as segregated, if not more, than our physical living conditions. So we've got got it both ways now, and that's going back to your point. That feeling of separation and difference between the lecturer and their students, and any older person and uh, younger people, has got to be influenced by that. Increased yeah. segregation. 
But then the insecurity is fed by millennial experts. I that I use a ter term quotation marks around the, the term millennial experts. Yeah, there's a great piece in Wall Street Journal that counted up 400 people on LinkedIn who described themselves purely as a millennial uh, consultant or a millennial expert. <laughs> and yeah, you're like, oh my, <laughs> my goodness. Um, uh, but like I say, an organization. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like I say, big employers buy it. And yeah. it is, uh, you know, there are retail chains in the US who have given their staff cheat sheets of how to praise different generations in different sorts of ways. And you yeah. think, and there is something here quite deep in, obviously people are, there's a separation which allows people to say that these groups are very different. You need to pay me to understand uh, that group. And that, that's like a, a key uh a key dynamic there in this uh but i mean it is it's a it, it's not just the workplace ones you can see it definitely in same sort of thing in marketing research where mm -hmm. uh big brands saying they're targeting millennials <laughs> when you're talking about you know uh 15 20 percent population it's um it's an in, insane way to think of um and, and it, i think it's a the destructive thing from a workplace point of view is it is a little bit of blaming the young people. If you've got a problem with retention of young people, it's quite easy to bring in to say, oh, it's this weird Gen Z generation yeah. coming through who just wants something different. When actually it gives the employer a chance to get themselves off the hook when it's probably just their practices um, right. and their approach rather than something weird that's happened in a new cohort. Yeah, right. Um Let's talk about uh, happiness. Hmm. Um, one of the things I think that you particularly point out as a really pernicious and dangerous is this idea of um, the suicidal generation that's getting hmm. about. That what Gen Z is really good at is killing themselves, um, and that there's something sort of inherently wrong with them to turn them towards it. Um, could you uh, please debunk that? Yeah, no, there is no evidence of suicide epidemic, and um, there was a you know there was a bit of a spate of coverage of this in the UK in the media because we did have a uptick year on year or mm -hmm. a year or two, <clears throat> but the long term trend in suicide is down among young people and and generally so, but it the the, the trend is down and people were just picking these particular. Uh, years in order to make this point of increase. And that, that is, like again, one of the very pernicious trends in how these things are reported against generational labels is people take these quite snapshot views and try to sum up a whole generation with that, that type of snapshot views. I mean, it is, um, and it is dangerous and annoying because it kind of detracts from some really big, important and real changes in happiness and mental mm -hmm. health, where we have had an increase, generation on generation, increase in mental health disorders among young people. Um, and it, mm -hmm. it was in the UK, the 18 to 24 group in 2000 was the least likely to have a mental health disorder. And now it's flipped around so that they are the most likely to have a mental health disorder. And it's particularly young women within um, these cohorts of young people coming through now. So we've got something serious to address, uh, but utterly distracted by the discussion of things like suicide epidemics or loneliness epidemics, um, uh, those types of uh, 
use misuse of the epidemic word. You'd think we wouldn't do that during an actual pandemic, but there's there's people uh, still doing, still drawing attention to these um, small small blips or short term trends and claiming that this is um, something much more substantial or structural. So, is there a long term loneliness trend? Just that's discernible. I mean, there's been people have been talking about it since the 19th century. Is it, is it finally yeah. happening? <laughs> it's really, really interesting. <laughs> but eventually, you know, it's going to go up or down, I guess. But. <laughs> really interesting. So, yes, it's, it's a story and it's sort of, um, I had to read a lot of the history books of loneliness and, yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for this book. And it is really interesting as a discussion because we've always worried that the next innovation is going to be the true result of a loneliness, it result in a loneliness epidemic or a huge increase, whether that was, you know, people moving to cities, people having their own cars, um, all sorts of little innovations were seen as this is going to change. Telephone uh, was, seen mm-hmm. to, was going to encourage this sort of thing. No, I mean, the challenge a little bit, and I did look for this quite hard, is finding long-term trends of measures of loneliness is really tough. You can definitely find long-term trends of people living more alone, and that is absolutely true. We live in smaller units or in single-person households to a much greater degree. But loneliness as a subjective assessment of an individual, which is, you know, you're only, it's all, all depends on your expectations. Um, it is, uh, you're, you're only lonely if your expectations of uh, social contact are not being met, is very difficult to find. And the, the longest term trends that I can find are, tend to be among small populations, particular populations of cohorts. Uh, and both of those show no real change when you look at, uh, and they, they tend to be either cohorts of old people, uh, lots of European studies on looking at long-term uh, uh, comparisons of different of groups of old people at different points in time or young people at different points in time, and no big shift on in either of those that I could discern. And what you do see is younger people do tend to express more loneliness uh, but that repeats for each new cohort of uh, young people. They come in most lonely and then they get, say, they're less lonely. Uh, and then it doesn't particularly go up very strongly when you're older because your expectations have changed of, of social contact. So it's actually, yeah, if anything, it's a young person problem, not a cohort problem. So uh, that, that thing about the suicidal generation um, mm. and it... Um, it leads to another topic that you discuss, uh, which is uh, the the creation of this generational culture war. So yeah. when I think of when I think of this, the myth of disloyalty, the myth of laziness, this myth of of a suicidal generation, what I'm hearing people saying, whether they realize it or not, is there's something fundamentally wrong with these people, with this yeah. generation. It's broken. It's damaged. Yeah, it's untrustworthy, um, and it's probably dangerous. It's like, this is, I mean, this is an old fear that, I mean, this is, I mean, look at the Republic. Um, This is the fear that, you know, that we're incubating our killers or our children. The next generation will destroy us. Um, But here we're doing it with like advertising magazine, uh, you know, um, sort of essays and lectures given to, you know, professors and things and generational yeah. consultants. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, it has, and with the, the uh, sort of plausible air of social, of, of vague social science. Yes. So what's the, uh, what's the creation of this generational culture war? What, what that seems to be the most pernicious of all these myths. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think, well, again, going back, starting with that, 
generational suicide point. I mean, I think that there is a really important trend, again, you see in the UK and the US, of, uh, and particularly in the US, of the deaths of despair point that Angus mm-hmm. Deaton and Anne Case made, yeah. where there is a real issue there with um, increased generation on generation in the number of deaths by suicide, alcohol, and mm-hmm. drug use, mm-hmm. uh, drug abuse. And it's undoubtedly and, going up, but it's uh, not that, necessarily the gen- uh, the youngest generation that's doing it. That's right. So it goes going up, and it is. They talk a lot about people in their middle age. Um, mm-hmm. That's where they 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 focus on that because it is a sense of a lost, the disappointment of a kind of lost way of life um, among particularly white, um, lower educated <clears throat> Americans, and that's. So there are some really big trends where understanding what's different between the generations is really important on picking. And that's where the kind of myths of suicide epidemics among particular, a a whole cohort of young people is really distracting from this real thing around uh, what is happening with white, lower educated Americans um, and that sense of uh, loss of respect and and a way of life and all of those types of things, which is, which is really, um, really important. And then I, the, the, the generational culture war aspect is uh, overlaid on top of that in our politics um, because it is uh, it's built on this sense that um, uh, this younger generation are uh, so different from us in uh, older people in cultural concerns they're right at the leading edge of um, social norms and cultural norms in a way that they haven't been in the past and They've gone too far on whatever the most uh, uh, sensitive issue, whether that's Fill in uh, the blank, ge- yeah. gender identity or yeah. it could be BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter type of movement or whatever, whatever it is. Um, when really my point is in the analysis in the book is that the gaps between young and old on those types of emergent cultural issues are completely normal, natural, and if anything mm-hmm. – the gaps between baby boomers and their parents were bigger on different issues. Um, there were different, the issues change over time. It was more yeah. gender, gender roles, what's a woman's role, and homosexuality um, back then. The, role, the issues change, but the gaps are certainly no larger now. And what's really changed is a period effect. Um, it's not to do with the cohorts. It's not to do with the difference in life cycle, life stages that people are at. It's to do with a, a period effect of a more fractious and uh, combative media, social media, and politics now, where we hear more from just the noisy extremes on either side of these mm-hmm. debates, the more traditionalist or conservative side or the, most, the more liberal or progressive side. They are amplified. We have we've built into our information environment a, a kind of... Uh, uh, incentive to amplify the most extreme views. Yeah. Um, I think so, some wit pointed out recently, this is actually statistically true, that if uh, left-wing Twitter and it was in America was a congressional district, it would be something like 90% progressive. And yes. right-wing Twitter, <laughs> and on the other hand, the right-wing Twitter is something like 85 to 90%. Yeah. So it's it's the extreme. It's in both of these ways the extremes are amplified on social media. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's that's the reason it feels more fractious right now, and it, it really does feel more fractious right now for us because of that um, uh, that information environment, not because of a particular group, a cohort of snowflakes or social justice warriors that are any different from previous generations right. of snowflakes and social justice warriors. And, and and of course this changes. I mean, I wish I had five bucks for every time a boomer said to me or some other, you know, Gen Xer in the eighties, how can you kids vote for Reagan? Cause I believe his yeah. support was greatest among 18 to 26 year olds, 18 yeah. to 30 yeah. year olds. Um, and, and we were all like, all we wanted to do is go and be a Gordon Gecko that, and you know, plenty of professors like were complaining to us that we hadn't bothered to write a poor Huron statement yet. Um, so th- this is these, geez, these general stereotypes uh, do, uh, they swing, they swing. Yep. They do. Um, let's talk about speaking about, um, generational, um, questions. Um, so the long prologue here, uh, the, I've generally tended, as I said to you, uh, when we began, I've generally tended to avoid generational thinking or thinking, uh, taking it very seriously at all mm-hmm. until I read uh, two essays in the journal of democracy back in July, 2016 and uh, January, mm-hmm. 2017 by Roberto Foa and Yasha Monk. They made a big splash. Um, mm-hmm. There was a forum eventually in 2017 by those who disagreed with them. And essentially um, Foa and Monk were sounding the, the klaxon and saying that, um, you know, there's this really weird thing going on both the United States and Western Europe um, mm-hmm. that the youngest, the youngest uh, cohort uh, does not give maximal importance to living in democracy. So those born prior to World War II uh, and, and for 20 years after World War II and say in Holland and the Netherlands had given it an, one out of 10 uh, with one being least important, 10 being maximally important, had given a 10 to living in a democracy. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, those born after 1990-2000 were, 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 that was only a, a third were giving, mm-hmm. saying that it was maximal importance. And amazingly enough, it was about 30% in the United States, um, more simultaneously amongst the same sort of age group. So this seemed to them rather a cohort effect rather than an age effect. Um, mm-hmm. The young, uh, young Dutch, young Americans in the fifties and sixties, they hadn't been, you know, proto. They hadn't been saying, yeah, authoritarian military dictatorship might be the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this began to make me a little queasy, um, and mm-hmm. began to wonder if that, you know. Orwell wasn't wrong and that maybe people do yearn for a jackboot to push in their face uh, for the rest of eternity, as long as it you know, was made from a leather alternative. Um, <laughs> so w- you've thought a lot about this. Um, what do you think uh, are the attitudes towards, say, um, democracy and re- Republican government amongst yeah. – is there, is there a cohort difference? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, and I, I suppose I come down on the side of, yes, that is – there are some trends there on some measures that would get you worried about uh, the cohort effect of being socialized, not being socialized in a period where democracy did feel under threat, um, mm-hmm. not even just you yourself directly, but your parents not really right. having much memory of that either. So that the messages get weaker over time about the um, the importance of that to people. And it's kind of, there's a really interesting parallel in the UK with um, pride in the welfare state, as mm-hmm. we would call it here. So that's everything from welfare mm-hmm. benefits to the National Health Service. And you've got this incredible gap between young and old, uh, where 80% of people say uh, that they're 
proud of the welfare state if you're in that oldest pre-war generation that's 70 percent for baby boomers and then down to 60 for gen x and then down to 30 uh, for millennials and around hmm. 30 20 for gen z because it because they weren't around before it they weren't around when it was being set up and they don't feel that same sort of connection to it um but the interesting thing with that is it's not a rejection of the welfare state it's just a lack of connection to it and i i do think there is something we have to be a bit careful with the analysis that says this is an active rejection of democracy among these groups because when i i look at different trends in the book on satisfaction with democracy over time over a very long period longer period than uh, all the way back to the 19 uh, early 1970s and what that shows is no generational difference in satisfaction with democracy apart from if anything younger people more satisfied with democracy in uh, a whole series of countries Um, and the second thing that it shows you is the enormous variation the ups and downs in people's overall attitudes to democracy over time which mm-hmm. is is really important because it goes against that sense of inevitable decline which mm-hmm. creeps into lots of discussions of generations from um, William Strauss and Neil Howe that Steve Bannon particularly picked up on where we've got this uh, impending crises uh, because of the generational types we have in society at a particular time and there is there is a tendency in generational analysis to try to get this horoscope type astrological view yeah. of impending doom um, coming from uh, the looking at generations and what I would say from that is and, and a bit about the Yashamonk uh, analysis is that we need to be careful uh, to look not just at one measure, but look across different things and look about whether, where we've been in similar places in history and how we've managed to recover uh, that type of view. Because otherwise we take agency away from ourselves now. Yes. And we've got this sense that this, this, this young people, again, we come back to that kind of point of this is this young generation, this weird young generation's fault and they're dragging us down into this inevitable crisis. Um, and that's not what I can get from the long-term trends that I was looking at. Um, it's neither a generational factor on satisfaction with democracy, and it goes up and down and can be recovered if you take the right sort of actions. Well, we could keep on going, but I want, want to bring this to a, yeah. a conclusion. I, I'm, I'm curious, um, I'm, to put you on the spot, this is the thing that would leave me stammering for five minutes, so be warned. Um, <laughs> if there's like one sort of, sort of like incontrovertible statistical direction that you were really surprised at uh, when you put this book together. Um, if there was a, maybe it's, maybe it is a, an actual generational difference. Yeah. Um, the sex thing is interesting, uh, yeah. but it might, might've been that, I, but what, what's an actual generational dis- difference that sort of actually makes you s- still scratch your head and wonder. Yeah. Well, the one that, I mean, like the one that I had to, triple check and ask the team to triple check was the alcohol one yeah that's which is, that <laughs> which is uh, crazy as a gen xer um and i don't um you are very grown up with a lot of alcohol <laughs> in your culture <laughs> and uh, in personal life uh but the um yeah so you've got this in all sorts of different ways but just take one stat from that in uh, the uk 30 
percent of the pre-war generation, so silent generation in US terms, uh, drink five nights or more a week, and then it's twenty five percent for baby boomers, around twenty percent for my, for our generation Gen X, and it goes down to like ten percent for millennials, and then it's point zero point uh, two percent um, for uh, Gen Z. And admittedly, they're still quite young and they're still mm. coming through, but that is. Um, I suppose I suppose I am both. I'm astounded by both ends of the spectrum that you get three and ten of that older generation who are now 70, 77, 78 plus, still drinking that frequently. I, I, I admire them so much. <laughs> I, me too. I know it shouldn't. It's not very healthy. Well, it could be I, not too unhealthy I, as well. But. It's like I, it's amazing. I wonder, like you know, when you tell a class about segregation i wonder if they're as astonished at segregation as they are when you inform that there was such a thing as a three martini lunch <laughs> yes absolutely yeah. exactly yeah, which, which is more astounding yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. i just i can't imagine a generation where you've got virtually no one doing it that is my yeah. and and it's, it's reflected in lots of other alcohol related questions of just um you know not even trying alcohol and we've had this this sense of um the increased risk of alcohol is incredible a massive shift from gen x to millennials and gen z on how risky they view alcohol drinking which how, is so, so how really do you think do you think that was like a follow-on effect from sort of anti-smoking campaigns i mean is this like sort of the the body as a temple is sort of like now the uh, that is the a, a religious attitude sort of there's really 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 interesting because we have made a generational break in smoking which is undoubtedly yeah. like one of the great positives and that was very deliberately set up as a generational investment where you would take out of young people in their formative years, any sign of tobacco branding or connection mm -hmm. in your daily mm -hmm. life to tobacco. And we've had some elements of that in alcohol, not as many, but we have had, we've made it more expensive. We've mm -hmm. stripped back the advertising to some degree. Um, we have, well, certainly in the UK, we've increased uh, the difficulty of buying alcohol and across Europe, difficult of buying alcohol when you're underage, all of the acceptability of all those types of things. So. Yeah, I think it's elements of the same sort of thing. It's all about that goes back to the big uh, sociology and f philosophy points may not be a bad place to end in some ways. Yeah. It's those formative years are crucial in shaping those generations. And we've had it definitively with smoking and we've had it to a great degree with alcohol. And we're seeing that feed through now. Well, my guest today has been Bobby Duffy. He's the author of what's called in America because titles have to be changed from Britain to America. Otherwise, publishers will be out of work. It's America. It's called The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. And it's a great and provocative read. Bobby Duffy, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It was great. Great conversation. Thank you. Just a brief reminder. If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>